worthy indeed is the Lamb, worthy is Christ, and as we gather here this morning, we again center ourselves around Him, center ourselves around this table here this morning, certainly to worship Him for His perfect sacrifice, His perfect life, His pouring out of His Himself on behalf of us so that we might have life and life everlasting with Him. As you know, we're going through Colossians, not verse by verse. Uh, We don't have uh, time for that in in this uh, time slot this time, but as we've been highlighting Christ in each of these chapters and passages so far, the high Christology of of Paul as he refutes the false teaching in Colossae, we're going to go there again this morning. So I'd ask you to open up to Colossians chapter 3. Charles Spurgeon uh, once said these words, wrote these words, it's a remarkable fact that all the heresies which have arisen in the Christian church going all the way back have had a decided tendency to dishonor God and to flatter man. Certainly the false teaching that was happening in Colossae uh, during this time was all about flattering man, maybe not dishonoring intentionally, And there's been heresies throughout church history that we can clearly see these two tendencies. Uh, One such heresy was the heresy that came from a man named Pelagius, uh, a British monk who moved to Rome in the 5th century, uh, in many ways a very prolific writer, a prolific even theologian, wrote much but declared to be a a heretic in in the year 417. Uh, maybe never intended to dishonor God, but certainly was on this path to flatter man. Fell into this trap of this inner desire for us to flatter ourselves. Uh, He first of all rejected the uh, doctrine of original sin. He felt that instead men were born morally neutral with an equal capacity for both good and, and evil. Born into the world, morally neutral, just like Adam was, with the freedom to choose. Morally pure, in fact, just like Adam. Each and every person, this is how he felt. We had this freedom to choose, not bound by Adam's choice, the fall. Adam was not seen by Pelagius as the head of man. We did not sin with him or or in him. There is no passing on of a sin nature from Adam to us. Uh, He, in fact, called original sin blasphemous. Adam, for all of us, was just an example, and a bad example at that. Uh, And it shows that we need to choose good over evil, um, but there are, of course, consequences, so choose good. Pelagius put much effort on the human will, uh, the human ability to choose, and rejecting, in rejecting sin nature, Uh, Therefore, we choose to sin, but also we can choose not to sin. We can achieve righteousness, and in fact, he would go on to say moral perfection. Moral perfection. Adam was just our bad example. Christ is our good example. Be like Christ. Very much, Pelagius was a moralist. He read the Bible that way. Uh, Right conduct was his focus. And this relationship with God became a transactional relationship. My morals 
end in this result of me manipulating God to receive blessing. God is, in fact, bound to bless the righteous, and he is bound to curse the unrighteous. There was no room for Pelagius for grace because it was our achievement. It was up to us to walk this path to be morally right before God. It's very subtle. There are things that when we read it and even when we hear it, yeah, it is. It has to be our, our part. We've got to do these good things. We have to choose what is right. It's very subtle, but when you imply all of these beliefs of Pelagius, you would say, if you're extremely talented, if you're self-disciplined, if you're highly motivated, then you determine your destiny. Its focus is on you, your works, and your merit. Potentially, this leaves out the cross. Pelagianism lives on, lives on in me, wanting to be morally right, wanting to show God my moral path, my moral choices, and expect to receive something in return. As we look at today, chapter 3, we probably won't have time to go through all of chapter 3, but as we come to the Lord's table, we come by faith. We come always looking for mercy, always in need of mercy, always in need of Christ's righteousness, because apart from Him, We have nothing to offer, nothing to add, no merit, no ability within ourselves to live up to God's standards apart from Him working in us and through us. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes, but if God sets forth before us His law, which is spiritual, we must ascend higher if we would fulfill it. Therefore, let us fix this conclusion in our minds, that the law is not fulfilled by any one of us unless we live entirely to God and God rules in us because nothing is more difficult than to put off man and to become a new creature new creature within ourselves we can't do that he says but we must despair of our own ability pelagius didn't despair of his own ability in fact he told everybody you have the capacity you have this ability calvin we run to christ Our efforts, our strength, our attempts are always falling short. Therefore, Calvin would go on, our mind must be molded and trained by the Holy Spirit. For if the Spirit does not quicken us, does not enlighten us, the law can only teach or condemn, but it cannot of itself lead us into the way of righteousness. It cannot enable us to walk in truth and obedience. Our efforts are futile if we run this race on our own strength, but it's God's grace working in us. And that's what we've been looking at already, heavily indicative so far in Colossians. Our faith in salvation, the object is Christ, His finished work. And that's what we come here this morning to remember His finished work. Our faith in salvation is in Christ and His work. Our faith in sanctification doesn't change. It's still the object is Christ and His finished work, but also His active work as He works in us, transforming us, conforming us. Just like we just sang, take my heart, take my mind, 
take my will and conform it, shape it, change it. Why do we pray that way? Because we know deep down inside we can't do those things. Faithfulness, righteousness, apart from Christ, it doesn't happen. There are many things that concern us, many doctrines even that flatter man and it's appealing to us. Uh, New teachings, flashy worship, uh, emotional driven sermonettes, make me feel good experiences in church. Who will get our attention today? As we look at chapter 3, Colossians, I pray it's Christ. I'm going to pray right now that he would open our eyes to the amazing truth of who Christ is and who we are in him once again. Father, thank you for this another day that we can open up your word, that we can gather here together as your church. We need you even right now, even right now to open up our eyes, to focus our attention. May your spirit bring our gaze once again to your word Bring our gaze to Christ as we look into your word that you would do your transformative work right now in us by the power of your grace, by the power of your spirit, so that we would glorify you, glorify the cross, the resurrection, as we gather around this table here in a bit, that you would prepare our hearts to worship, to remember, to proclaim, to anticipate you coming again through this meal. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 to set the stage of how we walk through this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if it has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving and thankfulness in your hearts 
to God in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of these things are flowing out of what Paul has said earlier. All of these things are flowing again, and we've talked about this as we're last week in chapter 2, flowing from chapter 2, verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Those words hang over this letter. As you received him, so walk in him. How will they not fall into this false teaching? Which, in fact, is flattering to man. It's mystery, right? It's intrigue. It's this secret knowledge. All playing on these human emotions. Very much flattering to man. Find that secret key, that new knowledge that I can now possess. Others don't have it. Yes, Jesus, but now it's really up to me. I can do it. I need to find my inner strength. I need to find this meditative place that I can tap into these spiritual resources. That will put me exactly where I need to be. Where is that? In control. In the driver's seat. That's where we want to be. This false teaching was leading in that way flattering man. So beginning in verse 1 in chapter 3, Paul again is going to elaborate this call to remain centered on Christ. Taking up probably the, this key Christological teachings of chapters 1 and 2, how we are identified with Christ, how that leads to a new way of life. Here, he proceeds from those two chapters into some very practical terms of how we're to live. There are three basics that he talks about in, in this chapter. One is just an overall summary. We're going to look at this to adopt a new mindset that really reflects our new identity in Christ. That's verses 1 through 4. And then he's going to elaborate this new way of thinking in verses 5 through 17 by means of this contrast, and we'll look at that, the old way of life, the old man, the putting off, and then the putting on. And then we will not probably get there for sure, but uh, the the remainder of the chapter, verses 18 on, saying that this new life does not absolve our our duties, our responsibilities to one another in these earthbound institutions of, of marriage, of family, of work. But instead, we have this new impetus, this new motivation that enables us to walk this life. So, real simple summary outline that we'll look at here is, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, heavenly thinking that leads to the second part of the outline, gospel-shaped living. Today, we'll probably just get through 17, verse 17. We may only, in fact, get to verse 11. But heavenly thinking, gospel-shaped living. First of all, verses 1 through 4. Let me read this again. If then you have been raised with Christ, uh, since then you have been raised with Christ, probably a better way to translate that, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, who is your life, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, of course, after the last few weeks, 
As we've looked at Colossians back in chapter 1, we've seen how Paul has laid this foundation. Thanksgiving rooted in the gospel. Rooted in the gospel working in the church in Colossae. His prayer was rooted in Christ. Rooted in the gospel. Praying that that gospel, that increasing fruit that is bearing in them would keep going in that direction. And then, of course, warnings against these false teachers and very heavy emphasis on expounding on the person and work of Jesus Christ, his, his fullness, his sufficiency, his authority, his preeminence, the prominent place that Christ deserves because of who he is and what he has done. He devotes a large portion of chapter 2, which we didn't go through completely in the last few weeks, but a large portion speaking about the believer's union with Christ. All of our spiritual blessings, all the spiritual resources to live that life come through that union. This letter is overflowing with indicatives, grounding them with truths, true statements of who Christ is and who we are in Him. Why does He do that? So that they would stand firm, so that they would guard the truth, so that they would live worthy of the gospel. And all of this is made possible because he saw from the very beginning in chapter 1, the gospel is increasing and bearing fruit in them from the day that they heard it. So if we just look at verses 1 through 4, heavenly thinking, Paul starts to bring this all together in very practical terms. He has two parallel commands now, imperatives, that constitute the heart of this paragraph. Seek the things that are above or keep seeking and set your minds on things above in verse 2. In fact, this is the first main clause of this chapter, starting out this chapter with his main clause is seek the things that are above where Christ is, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on this earth. To seek means to strive for earnestly. It's a fixing of your attention decisively toward things above, not things below, not things on this earth, but on things above, centering our focus on the ascended, glorified Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Christ is exactly where he said he would be. You remember at even his trial, he told the high priest, I will be, with, I will be at the right hand of the Father. Conquering sin and death, he's now exalted through this suffering, and he's taken his rightful place of authority. At the right hand of God, he in fact right now is interceding for each one of us, Romans 8.34, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact image, the one who holds all things, created all things, sustains all things, is at the position of where he belongs, exalted. Set your minds there. This seeking involves striving in verse 1, but then he says, set your minds on things above. Concentrate. Direct your thoughts there. They should be dominated by heavenly realities. Of course, this is the direction of our life, right? Toward heaven. But the reality for us now is Christ's authority over us, His living in us and through us, affecting in fact, our earthly duties, dominated by heavenly realities 
Paul wants their, their thoughts to be there on Christ. Set your heart, set your mind on Him who is in this exalted position. We live now in this strength and power of the one who is exalted. Not on our own, not strength and power that's found in this earth, not in our status, not in our, our job, not in how much money we have, not in our title, not through some spiritual journey to reach some elevated experience, some meditative state. No, we're grounded in realities of the person and work of Christ and our union with Him and His union with us. That statement should cause us to wonder, worship. It's an amazing statement, our union with Christ and His union with us. So Paul grounds these two commands, set your heart, set your minds, once again with truth of the believer's identification with Christ in both death in verse 3 and resurrection in verse 1. And that's where his subordinate clause, it flows out of that set your minds. His subordinate clause comes here, provides the reason for seeking the things above. He says in verse 1, if then, since then, you have been raised with Christ. For you have died, verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Since you were raised, past tense, completed, since you were raised, it's this idea of co-resurrected. Again, in our union with Christ, we spiritually enter into his death and resurrection at the moment of our conversion. Now, alive, alive in Christ, alive to God, the reality of our spiritual blessings are now ours in Christ. He says in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It, it implies concealment, security. We have this common spiritual life flowing from our relationship with the Father, with the Son, sealed by the Spirit, protected, kept. Peter talks about that inheritance that is kept for us, secured for us. And we ourselves, he says, are kept by the power of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Through God's precious promises, we have become, Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. So here in verses 1 through 4, this broad perspective, he brings the climax, this summary of, of much of what he's talking about, and all along he's talking about Christ is your focal point. He is your center. And he draws us in as readers to the significance of Christ and these eternal implications of our status with him and the source that we have in Christ for all things. Set your minds on things above. Why? Because you were raised. You died with Christ. And your life now is hidden with Christ. Your source of life, your source of identity, your strength, your hope, your endurance, your ability to stand, even your obedience is in Christ, through Christ, as we abide in Him, as we grasp this connectedness to Him in His death, in His resurrection, through our union. So we're not striving here for a heavenly status. We already have that status in Christ 
through Him. Rather, that status of who we are is serving as our guidepost of all of our thinking and all of our acting. Set your minds on things above. This is not a dream about heaven passage, hope in heaven. It's not what it's talking about, what are other places for that. It's instead bringing this reality of the authority, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, into your life now. Set your minds on Christ and who He is for your life now on this earth. Heavenly thinking then shapes how we live in the here and now. Verse 4, the last verse of this thinking heavenly, when Christ... Why he adds this, uh, it's emphasis, who is your life? He could have just said, when Christ appears, you also appear with him in glory. He says, when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you also appear with him. Paul concludes these two commands of seeking, setting your mind with this expression of confidence that our identification, in fact, extends to Christ's second coming when believers will appear with him in glory, but that Christ now is your life. Our union with Christ means we no longer belong to this realm of this earth, but to a heavenly realm. We're to live accordingly. Our union with Christ, in fact, severs our, uh, us from this tyranny of the power of sin, the enslavement of sin. It severs that, and it brings us into this new power this new enablement, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And of course, typical of Paul here, he's bringing us with this paradigm of already, not yet. Already raised with Christ, not yet glorified because of Christ being in us, us being in Him. We have been raised. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And for us, we've been raised with Him. So Paul is about to turn to some very practical things, but he, he still lays heavy indicatives mixed together with these two, these two commands. So he turns here to some very practical areas of life, but he grounds it again in these uh, indicatives that are presently available, but also leads them towards some, some future things. He focuses on the new heavenly dimension the reality that dawns with the coming of Christ. Heavenly thinking, forward thinking that affects our present life. The outworking of the gospel-shaped life in verses 5 and really into chapter 4. Our life now and our life in the future is inexplicably bound to Christ. Therefore, set your minds on Him. Realize your union with Christ matters now in the present as he transforms us, as we walk with him, just as we received him. We have this hope now, he says in chapter 1, in fact, and we will become exactly what he is transforming us into. So, so these, in, these, these three indicatives in verse 4 really carry us to the rest of this, this chapter. Christ will appear in his glory. He is our life. We will appear with him in glory. So then, if we move into this gospel-shaped living, uh, we're going to break. I'll break this up into just two different lists that Paul gives here. The first list is 
of course, in 5 through 11, which we read, and we'll read through more of this. The second list is in 12 through 17. The put on, the put off, or first of all, the put off. So Paul, after laying these two commands, laying down some more indicatives of Christ being our life, and He will appear in glory, and we will appear with Him, he moves into these two lists of putting off and putting on, talking about the old man versus the new man. So first of all, this is again, connect this back to verses 1 through 4. He says in verse 5, put to death therefore, contrasting the old way of life with this new way of life. And he clearly marks this in two places, verse 5, put to death therefore, and then again in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. It's interesting to note how he divides these two, this one list, at least into two parts, with verse 5, and then he repeats a pattern in verse 8. Let me just kind of set this up for you. He has these two imperatives. Uh, He first of all denotes a a general sense of sin, and then he elaborates, and he gives a, a list of five specific sins or vices that hold on to us. So he he makes a general statement, put this off, and he's going to list five particular ones, and he concludes at the end by giving some other comment, commentary on that last sin. So if you have your Bible, read with me through just verse 5. Just look at this. Put to death, therefore, based again on verses 1 through 4, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's broad, right? Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put those things to death. And he's going to list five things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. And then he adds this comment to to greed, which is idolatry. He has the same pattern from verse 8. Rid yourselves of or put away then these things, all such things as these. Again, broad, general statement. Get rid of all such things as these. And then he lists five sins, five vices, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and he adds that little comment, from your lips, from your mouth. So same structure, as he breaks up this list, kind of repeats uh, this framework for them, put these things to death, rid yourself of these things. Notice some characteristics of this list. God, first of all, judges this conduct. His wrath comes on against this conduct. This conduct only belongs to their former life, the way they once walked. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now put them away. You once walked that way, but now you've died with Christ. You have risen with Christ, going back again to verses 1 through 4. So this conduct is defined by what is earthly in verse 8, right after he lays verses 1 through 4, all this discussion about setting your minds on things above, seeking that which is above, Christ, the one who will appear in glory, who is your life, and you will be exalted as he comes in his glory. Put all those things away because now you're looking at the heavenlies. 
whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your former nature, again, connecting back to this heavenly thinking, Christ will appear, He's your life, set your minds on those things. So living like you did in the past doesn't align with your new position in Christ. It doesn't flow out of your union with Christ. It, in fact, ignores your heavenly realities of Christ living in you. Put it off because this is not who you are. That is not the sphere that is the source of your life any longer, the source of your behavior any longer. Paul's put off and and put these things away. The tense of this in, in Greek could be read, mortify it, do it now, do it resolutely. Cut it off. Put these things away. Put these things to death. Interesting because Christ has already done it. But we are to know it. We're to count it to be true. And we're to act accordingly. By setting our minds on things above, we're not going to go on living as though we still live to sin, but that we're alive to God. Some may think that this is just too much talk about indicatives. Pelagius would certainly think this way. Don't, you don't need to talk about who we are in Christ. You don't need to talk about what Christ did. You don't need to talk about what Christ is doing now. We need to talk about what you're doing right now. Too much discussion about imperatives leads to laziness and sin. The gospel was helpful when I first believed, but it has no bearing on me any longer. Now I just need to get to work. This is the Pelagianism that comes up in our hearts and our minds. It would seem that indicatives, in fact, these true statements about who Christ is and, and who we are in Him, it would seem that these indicatives actually take the sting out of the imperatives. The imperatives don't seem very strong if we focus on these indicatives. I think, in fact, it's the other way around. I think the indicatives bring wind to the sails. They don't destroy us like the Pelagianism of the day that says, it's up to me to do this. That destroys us. But it brings wind to the sails. And without that wind, without these imperatives, none of us have any hope. Because Christ is your life. Christ in you. The life I live, I live by faith in what? The Son of God. I've been crucified with Christ. Dead to sin, Romans 6. Raised with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the power of God. The power of His grace that is working in us to transform us, to change us. We who have died to the elements of the world that Paul talks about earlier in Colossians and to the power of sin, which Paul talks about over and over, especially in Romans 6, all because of our union with Christ, we are to become dead to sin, become, in air quotes, understand, reckon by faith these realities of who we are in Christ. Dead to sin, raised with Christ. So this putting to death 
of sin is not only demanded by our relationship with Christ. These imperatives, these commands, it's demanded because of our relationship in Christ, but it also empowers us and affects the way that we live. Union with Christ puts us in this new relationship to sin and brings us into the sphere of the Spirit's power that will impact the way that we live. Ultimately then, the imperative put to death, and these verses must be viewed as a call to respond to it, to cooperate with it, with this transformative power that is already at work in us. It's a call to faith. It's a call to believe. It's a call to trust in his work in us. In fact, look at verses 9 and 10. Uh, this is the last, ver- the last sin that he mentions here in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off, put away two very strong imperatives full of sting for all of us. Put to death these things. And then he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self. These are participles. These are verbs that act as adjectives. They they sound like commands, but they're actually the force of indicatives, the force of something that has already happened. Having put off, having put on. They give this explanation of what has happened to the Colossians, to us, at the time of their conversion. They had taken off the old man and put on the new when they trusted Christ. Our problem, just like Romans 12, 1 and 2, as living sacrifices, what do we do? We crawl off the altar. Here, with Paul's illustration, we take off the new clothes in Christ. We, we want to take those clothes off. We slip back into those old, ragged, comfortable clothes, the old man. We go back even to the grave and we, we dig up our old selves. We fall back into that earthly life. Paul's imperative sting because that's what we do. We take off those clothes. We want to put back on those comfortable ones. Those ones that flatter us. We feel good temporarily in, in sin. Paul here says, put to death those things. Because you've already put them off. Indicatives and imperatives. It stings because we disconnect our walk from the imperatives. We, we disconnect our walk from who we really are in Christ. These imperatives, they sting. The, the indicatives, they bring us back to the reality of who we are in Christ. Paul uses this phrase, put off, put on, very often, talking about those in Christ who've already put off the old self. Those in Christ are instructed to put off the old self. You're already, but you're also instructed to put them off. Putting on the same thing, those in Christ have already put on Christ, but those in Christ are commanded to put on Christ again. 
Romans 13, 14 says the same thing. B, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Those in Christ have already put on the new self. You have put on the new self here in in verse 10. And then we're also instructed to do that also. Ephesians says it. Romans says it. 1 Thessalonians says it. And then we're also to put on love and other virtues. And what really gets us is those in Christ who have perishable mortal bodies one day will put on imperishable, immortal, heavenly bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Who gets to do that? Christ. We don't do that. We can't do that. It applies to all of our life. For in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, 2 Corinthians 5.2. It's God who does this. Just like this table that we're going to take part in here, this meal, Christ provides the new clothes, the new garments. Christ provides the bread and the cup. He instituted this new covenant by his blood, by his perfect atonement. Heavenly thinking leads to gospel-shaped living. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your work, your perfect work. As we gather here, transition to this table here this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would once again help us to even get to that place of understanding our union with you. We have died with you. We were raised with you. You are in us as we come and understand who we are because of you, Father. I I pray that your spirit would do that work of transformation in our hearts, do that work to change the way we think, the way we act, that you would help us to set our minds on the things above, even as we gather at this table, to set our minds on things above as we corporately come to remember you, to proclaim your death, to anticipate your return through this meal, may you be glorified. May you help us even right now to come to you in humility. Come to understand your work of grace that's in us even now. We didn't get to talk about much of the putting on But Father, you have done extraordinarily beyond what we could comprehend in our salvation. And you continue to do that in our sanctification. May this table, as we remember you, as we set our minds on things above, on Christ who is exalted at the right hand of the Father, may you be lifted up. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.